your Bibles open, your electronic Bibles open to uh, Acts chapter 11. The passage we are covering today is an ongoing in-depth study of the book of Acts. And it is a unique passage. It is a summary of what we just covered in chapter 10. We're in chapter 11. Now we have a summary with one caveat. Peter is explaining it to the Jews of the circumcision who are in shock that Peter went into a Gentile's house. And he's got to explain it to them to get this on his side. Roman Gentiles have entered into the church and it will never be the same. In fact, I said last week that Gentiles coming into the church was like a dam that started to leak that would finally be broken open and it would be the majority of Gentiles who would be Christians, although there are Jews who are Christians today. Now, this brings us to the first heresy that they had to deal with in the church. And the title of our message, this is a little bit cumbersome, it's a little large, a unified front against the up-and-coming first heresy heresy in the church. The first heresy that they had to face was legalism or Judaizers who declared that in order to be a Christian, the Gentiles had to be circumcised or had to keep certain parts of the law. Paul gets so frustrated with this that Paul says, even we believe by faith. What did Paul mean by that? Paul was raised as a Pharisee. Paul had accomplishments within Judaism. Paul had done everything they were supposed to do. And Paul says, even we believe by faith. Our, our work in Judaism did nothing for us. And to make the Gentiles turn around and do certain things, keep the law in certain ways, was indeed a heresy. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at our text. Then we want to talk about the difference between heresy and error. This is a really important point because some people want to paint with too broad of a brush and call every difference that Christian has as heresy instead of what it is, is, in, is error. And then we want to take a look at how the Bible clearly combats legalism. Let me give you the definition of legalism. This is the Encyclopedia of Christianity in the United States. And it defines legalism as a pejorative description, meaning it's negative. When we say that someone is a legalist, it is a negative term, a pejorative descriptor for the direct or indirect of attachments of behavior, discipline, or practices to belief in order to achieve salvation and the right standing before God, emphasizing the need to perform certain deeds in order to gain salvation. In other words, legalism is when someone teaches you've got to do something to be saved. When in reality, there's nothing you can do. What can you do? We are, we are, we have a sin nature. We need to believe in Christ. It's by grace. I can't jump high enough. I can't do enough work. I can't make up for my sin enough. There is nothing that I can do. I have to receive it by faith, believing and trusting in him. So let's take a look at our passage. I want to talk a little bit about what we find here, but I'm going to make our way through it pretty quickly because we've already heard it twice. First of all, when it happened in chapter 10, and then when he went into Cornelius's house, he told Cornelius what he's going to tell these men here now. So here's how it starts. This is Acts 11.1. 1. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea 
heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now that should be a hallelujah, amen moment. The, the Jews that are in Jerusalem here, the Gentiles received the word of God. It ought to be excitement. However, verse two, and when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went into an uncircumcised man and ate with them? So they're shocked that Peter would go into their house and eat with them. I pointed out last week that, that the Old Testament never said you couldn't eat with a Gentile. It never said you couldn't interact with a Gentile. It, it never even said that you couldn't marry Gentiles. In fact, interracial marriages were common, somewhat common, even among the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. Moses was married to an Ethiopian woman. Ruth married Boaz. They had Jesse, who had David. So David's great-grandmother, or is it David's grandmother? David's grandmother was a Moabitess. God had no problem with interracial marriages. The problem God had was, he said, don't marry idol worshipers. He did not want people who were serving the living God to marry someone who was worshiping idols. That was the problem that, he, that, that God had. It had nothing to do with separating yourself from the Gentiles. And he said that they were not to interact with idol worshipers. So it had nothing to do with whether or not you could eat with the Gentile. But they had their own customs. They had their own commands. They had their traditions. And in their tradition, you didn't go to eat with a Gentile. You just didn't do that. And so God had straightened out Peter. And now these guys are upset. And uh, you went to go and eat with them. Verse four, but Peter explained to them in order from the beginning saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance and was in a vision and an object ascended like a great sheet let down from heaven by its four corners and it came to me when I observed it intently I considered and I saw four-footed animals of the earth wild beasts creeping things and birds of the air and I heard a voice saying to me rise Peter kill and eat but I said not so Lord for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered into my mouth now there were on this sheet both kosher and unkosher food and Peter was like, I'm not eating that. It's unkosher. So he would not eat it. But God said, don't you call unclean what I call clean. Now we know God's talking about Gentiles. God's using this as an example to say, don't you call a clean Gentile unclean. We know God's talking about that. But also the dietary law is going to be changed. You do not have to eat kosher in order to be a Christian. Praise God, because I like cheeseburgers and pepperoni pizza, and shrimp, all of which is not kosher. In verse 9 it says, But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not, not call common. Now this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent from Caesarea. Caesarea is a Gentile city. It is the headquarters of Pilate. It is a military city. So when he says three men from Caesarea were there, these were Gentiles. So here's the coincidence. God tells them not to call unclean what he's called clean. They call Gentiles unclean. And there are three Gentiles at the door downstairs. I think that God works in our lives in this way. Doesn't work always, but sometimes and some for more people than others. Where 
you're working on something, you're praying about something, God lays something on your heart, and the next thing you know, there's something that's connected with what you've been doing. You might think it's a coincidence, but I think it's a god I believe that God is the head of the body and he works with us in this way. And God was working this way with Peter. And so then in verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go down with them doubting nothing. So go down there and you go with them even though it's against your traditions. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. So now Peter throws them under the bus. He's got six other Jews that are with him. And he's like, these six brethren accompanied me. They're upset at Peter. It's not only me. These six did it as well. And it says, and we entered the man's house and he told us how we had seen an angel standing at the house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So what happened to us happened to them. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift. Notice the way this is worded because there are some people that will say that you have to speak in tongues to be saved and they want to use this passage as a, as a support passage. He says God gave them the same gift. Their speaking in tongues wasn't a work. It was a gift given to them by God. So he says, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. When did they receive the gift? When they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't speak in tongues and then receive salvation. They believed by faith and then received the Holy Spirit evidenced by them speaking in tongues. This is not a passage that can support it. It goes the other way around. You believe and then God does certain things in your life. He goes on to say, uh, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has gathered the Gentiles uh, to the repentance of life. I love their, I don't really love it. It's interesting. They have a half-hearted kind of excitement about it. Well, then I guess God's added the Gentiles into eternal life because they just don't have a vision of the gospel spreading around the world yet. They will receive it, but they don't have it now. They have their, Jesus said to scribes and Pharisees, you have your traditions of men and you teach them as if they are the word of God. That's exactly what they did with the Gentiles. They had their traditions. They taught them as if they were the word of God. Now, at this point, it's good for us to evaluate and to ask the questions. Do you have a tradition of men that you believe or teach as the word of God. This is something that every pastor should be challenged to. Are we as pastors teaching traditions of men as if they are the word of God? That's why we want to approach the Bible to find out what we believe rather than approaching the Bible to back up what we already believe. And we should all be willing to say, I was wrong if you are not right in something. I'm never afraid to find passages that show me that what I believe is not right. Even though I like being right, and trust me, anyone who knows me knows I like being right, but I would rather really be right than try to defend what is right but is actually wrong. We want to know what the truth is. Now, 
Notice that there was that there was not work that they had to do before they got saved. While Peter was preaching, they believed by faith and God had the Holy Spirit fall upon them. They got saved. It wasn't even an invitation. They just believed. God's showing us through this account, which is given to us four times in Acts, twice in, in chapter 10, one in chapter 11, and again in chapter 15. We're going to read this again so that God will show us over and over again. It is faith by which you are saved. It is not a work. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been saved because they didn't do anything. They simply believed in their heart. And when they believed, God had the Holy Spirit fell upon them, which was the evidence of salvation. Notice they didn't get baptized and then get the Holy Spirit. They didn't go to church on Saturday. They didn't keep part of the law. The, the miracle of salvation happened when they heard the gospel and believed. And I use that term on purpose. The miracle of salvation happened when they believed. Because when a cult adds salvation by some work, they like to use that term. The miracle of salvation happened when you got baptized. The miracle of salvation happened when you became a member of our church. The miracle of salvation happened when you spoke in tongues. The miracle of salvation happened when you started going to church on Saturday. No, 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 no. And I'll add a couple more no's. The miracle of salvation happened when you believed. When you put your trust in Christ, that's the miracle of salvation. And I do want to make that clear. The legalists are still with us today, trying to add all kinds of works to salvation, especially on college campuses. You're going to run into those groups. I want to talk to the college kids who are with us today because there are groups on college campus. They invite you to a Bible study. You go to their Bible study. Everything seems kosher. And then all of a sudden they start to tell you, well, you go to Calvary Chapel. Well, Calvary Chapel doesn't teach everything right. You go to Pantano. Well, Pantano doesn't teach everything right. You go to Castrovis. Castrovis doesn't teach everything right. You have to do what we tell you to do. You have to be baptized by us generally is what they teach, that we're the only ones. When you're with these groups and you ask them, what church are you affiliated with? And they tell you, we're affiliated with the church. Now you know you have problems. They're not going to tell you who they're with. They don't want you to be able to identify them. If someone will not tell you what ministry they align themselves with, they'll say, we're the only ones. We're the true church of God. We're the only ones serving him. Why would you be involved in any other church since we're the ones who are truly serving him? Be careful. I have known people that kids have gotten involved in these and now it's very hard to get them out. And they're now trusting in what they're doing to be saved rather than believing by faith. Now, we are told clearly that salvation is not of works. Listen to this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What is grace? Undeserved favor. Clearly, it is grace. Now, he's going to add to that so that you can't make a mistake. It's by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourself. You can't jump high enough. You can't do enough work. You can't do anything to get saved. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Notice that right away, Paul has made some really clear things because he's fighting this legalism. He says it's by grace. You're saved by faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. 
not of works. Now he just goes right there. It's not of works. You can't do any works to be saved. Lest anyone should boast. Then he says this, for we are his workmanship. It's not about the work we do for God. It's about God working in us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not that works don't follow. It's that you get the, 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 the cart before the horse. You try to bring works in for salvation. Once I receive Christ and he comes into my life and now God is inside of me, how can I not change? How can that, there not be evidence of the fruit of God working within me? But it is nothing to do with works that we get saved. This is really important because these people are still around today. They come in among us, unknown. They come in pretending they are someone else. They read their Bible so that when you say, well, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading how you're really saved because this church doesn't really do it. Now, they might not go right away to that, but they take their time. So you need to know these things. Now, let's talk about the difference between heresy and false teaching, because this is really important. There are discernment ministries, and I'm, I'm glad there are discernment ministries. I just wish, wish they wouldn't paint with such a broad brush. They paint with such a broad brush that anybody that disagrees with them is a heretic. So I want to just clarify the difference between what is heresy and what is error. A false teacher would teach something different about the essentials of the gospel. So you don't call someone a false teacher that, that believes something different than you. It's when they're teaching something different that is essential about the gospel. The prosperity movement is false teachers because they are teaching that God wants you rich, that God never wants you sick, and that God wants you giving money to them. It is an essential of the gospel that makes them false teachers. Now, heresy is against something essential as well. Error is not heresy. It's being wrong about something non-essential. So every pastor is going to find out when we get to heaven that we had something wrong. There, there's no pastor. And I realize you run into someone who will say, not me, I have everything right. I have nothing that's wrong. Everyone does. But they're on non-essential things. False teachers teach things like Jesus was spirit only. This was one of the early heresies that had to be fought. He didn't come in a literal body, but he was a spirit. He didn't leave footsteps on the beach. And this had to be fought against. And they are damaging to the church. They undermine the gospels. False teachers teach things like you are saved by eating kosher or being circumcised. False teachers deny the resurrection, for example. They will say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe. I believe Jesus rose spiritually from the dead and didn't rise physically from the dead. That's a heresy. False teachers teach immorality is permissible and anything goes. So false teachers will say, you can go out and live any way that you want to because that's not what God cares about. Go get involved in any sin that you want to. And that's OK. It's a heresy. It's radically different than what the Bible teaches about self-denial and self-control and how we are supposed to live with character living our lives for Christ. Now, an example in the church, there were those that taught that you should eat kosher. In other words, there were those that had the conviction that they should eat kosher. But Paul did not treat them as though they were false teachers unless they were telling people it was a matter of salvation. In other words, if you decide, 
I want to eat kosher. I believe that I'm supposed to. But you don't believe it's a salvation issue. It's something you believe that you should do. You have the freedom to do that. No one's going to tell you you can't. If you decide, I want to go to church on Sunday, more power to you. Go to church on Sunday. If you don't decide that you want to go midnight on Wednesday night, go to church midnight on Wednesday night. You have freedom in Christ. This is the beauty of being a Christian. You have freedom in Christ to give him what you feel convicted that you should give to God. But as soon as you tell someone, I, I started going to church on Saturday and I found that I really got saved and you can get saved too by going on Saturday. Eh, eh, eh. Heresy meter starts going off. Now you've gone from just being, you don't have to eat kosher. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches us that. But if you believe you're supposed to, that's just an error. That's not heresy. As soon as you connect it to salvation, it turns into heresy. This is important to understand. If they say it's better to eat kosher or to please God, that does not make it a heresy or a false teacher. In other words, they say, well, you know, I started eating kosher and I found that my relationship with God was better. That's not heresy. It's error because eating kosher isn't going to get you any closer to God, but we're not going to call that person a heretic. We're only going to call them a heretic when they start saying you can't be saved unless you eat kosher. Now, the Bible makes a distinction between these things that undermine the gospel and damage the church. Someone can be wrong about non-essential issues. For example, there's premillennial, all-millennial, and postmillennial. We are, the majority of us, are premillennial. We believe that there's going to be a seven-year trial and tribulation period. Then there's going to be a thousand years of peace where Christ reigns upon the church. And then he's going to return and establish eternity with a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Some believe that this is the millennium. Now, the devil's locked up during the millennium, so I don't know how that works, but they believe that. Some believe that we are going to Christianize the world and hand over a Christianized world to God. In other words, we're going to vote in all Christians and, and every nation's going to be run by Christians and the world's going to be completely Christianized before Jesus returns. There are so many problems with that, I can't even begin to go into it. But some people believe that. If they believe post-millennialism, that the whole world's going to be Christianized first, that's not a heresy. That's an error. They're brothers and sisters in Christ that believe something different than us. If they are all millennialism, they're brothers and sisters in Christ that believe something different than us. Creationism. Some people believe in a literal six days. Some people believe that those days were ages and that God created the world over a long age. That's not heresy. Those are differences of things that people believe. It's something that I acquiesce. I acquiesce the age of the earth because if God, God created the earth in six days, he created it to look old. And so now you're going to tell a scientist he's stupid for not believing that it was created in six days if it looks old? It's like, this is the analogy. God creates Adam in a day. Adam is 25 years old when he creates him. And you get a scientist to say, how old do you think this guy is? And the scientist says, well, he has a beard. He's a full grown man. I'd say 25. And you go, idiot, God created him yesterday. You've got to acquiesce it to a scientist who doesn't believe in God. So I always acquiesce the age of the earth. We've got light trails that go out 13.5 billion years. If God created those all in one day, then God did what he did. Or, or in six days, God did what he did. But I acquiesce it. I'm not ready to argue about that. Evolution's a different story, by the way. And we can go into that someday. Uh, that's a whole different issue. 
However, the age of the earth is just, it's just differences. It doesn't matter. The use of gifts in the church. There are cessationists who believe the gifts have passed away. There are continuationists who believe that the gifts have continued. That's just error. Somebody believes something different. That's not heresy. That's just error. The role of women in church. You have egalitarians who believe that a woman can hold the position of a pastor and a teacher within a church. Then you have complementarians and complementarianism. And we are complementarianism. We believe women and men are created equal. We believe that they complement one another. This is where complementarianism comes from. But we believe that the role of a pastor is not the role of a woman. So you see a church that has a, a woman pastor, that's an error. It's not heresy. These are the things that people turn into heresies. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has to do with what churches believe. And I've heard women that can outpreach most men, by the way. Now we stand on the other side, but that's not to say that any church that would do that would be teaching heresy. They're teaching error. And we could go on talking about differences because there are so many differences that there are in the church. Now, let me give you a quote. I'll finish up the section on heresy by this. Let me give you a quote by Robert Godfrey, who is a minister in the, Re in the United Reformed Church in North America and formerly served as the third president of Westminster Seminary in California. In 2017, he was president emeritus and professor emeritus in church history. He says, in regards to the difference between heresy and error, it is a great question because the word heresy sometimes gets thrown around by people. He's just saying a lot of people love to throw out heresy if it's different. But then he says this. Some people use the word heresy simply to mean any error of a fairly serious error in theology. But classically, the word heresy is used to describe those theological errors so serious that they would deprive one of salvation. I think we ought to be using heresy more in that sense. And that's the way that we're using heresy as we make our way through the book of Acts and we'll run into several heresies as we make our way through it. Now, um, let's see some of the passages that help us to understand and fight against the Judaizers and the legalists. These were people who were telling people you have to become Jewish in order to be saved. Christianity is a sect of Judaism is what they were teaching. They were teaching you got to become Jewish and then you can get saved. So here's what the Bible says about it. In Romans 7, 6, and listen how clear this is. In Romans 7, 6, it says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. He had used an analogy. He said, when a woman and a man are alive and married and the man dies, now the woman is no longer under the law. While he's alive, she's under the law of marriage. But when he dies, she is free to remarry because the death has freedom from the law. And now in Romans 7, 9, he says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. We died in Christ and now we are no longer under the law. It is that death that has freed us. He goes on to say, having died to what we were held by so that we should in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In Galatians 3, 10 and 11. Again, look how clear this is. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. This means you can't pick and choose. You can't tell people you got to be under the, the ceremonial laws, but you can't be under the, the moral laws. Or you have to be under uh, you know, the different parts of the law. You, it's the whole law. It says, but, the one, but, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. So Paul says to the Galatians, the fact that no one's justified by the law is evident. What can you do to be saved? What good work can you do to save yourself? The fact that no one can be justified by works is evident. He goes on to say, um, for the just shall live by faith. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Again, so clear. We are not justified by the works of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. Even we who have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Why does the New Testament say so much about this? Because even though these people with Peter said, well, then I guess the Gentiles have come in. There's a whole group of Judaizers and legalists. Judaizers were Jews who believed the Gentiles could be saved by becoming Jewish. And legalists were Gentiles who believed you had to keep the law and become Jewish to be saved. So there's a difference between legalists and Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish. Legalists were not. And so this was happening in the early church. And it swept through it so much that they finally have to have a council over the issue in chapter 15. Two more verses. Galatians 5, 4 says, You have been estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. He's saying, if you think you're going to be justified by the law, you're estranging yourself from Christ. He says, you have fallen from grace. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. This is the last one. So let no one judge you with food or drink. That's in, in what you eat. I like the way that says it there. Let no one judge you. Look, you want to ditch cheeseburgers and eat kosher? More power to you. I'm not going to do it, but you can. Of regards to festivals, new moons and Sabbaths. Festivals, there were seven feasts every year within the Jewish calendar. New moons. The Jewish calendar is by, by moon. It's set up by the moons. It's not set up how our calendar is. It's set up by the moons. And they celebrate new moons. And Sabbaths, we know that Sabbaths are very Jewish, right? On the Sabbath, you didn't do any work on that day. There were certain things that you were restricted from traveling certain distances. That's the Old Testament Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance are in Christ. So let no one judge you with drink or food or in regards to festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. Don't let anyone judge you. Now, there are plenty of people today who say that you have to keep the Sabbath, meaning you've got to go to church on Saturday in order to really be saved. And what they'll say to you is, it says in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So you guys that are here on Sunday, the people that came last night on Saturday, they're fine. But you guys are in trouble because you're here on Saturday. But Jesus fulfilled the law and he became our Sabbath. I've got to say of these Sabbatarians that if they just say, we prefer to go to church on Saturday, they have freedom in Christ, right? You want to go to church on Saturday? Go to church on Saturday. You want to go to a church that only holds services on Saturday? You can go to a church that only holds services on Saturday. You have freedom. But as soon as you think you're better than anyone else, that's the problem. 
As soon as you start thinking that you're fulfilling the Sabbath by going to church on Saturday, that's the problem. I would have respect for Sabbatarians if they said we keep the Sabbath as it was given in the Old Testament, which means they could only travel so far. They've changed it to traditions of men that keeping the Sabbath is going to church on Saturday. That's never said in the Bible. Never does the Bible say going to church on Saturday is keeping the Sabbath. Well, maybe it's in Third Opinions, chapter four, verse two, but I don't have that in my Bible. So it's, it's not anywhere. I respect them if they went, we don't travel beyond this point. We don't do any work on that day. We do the things the Bible says in the Old Testament, but they don't do it. They take the traditions of men going to church on Saturday equals keeping the Sabbath. They take the traditions of men and they teach them as if they are the commandments of God. And have you ever heard that before? Jesus said that to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you take the traditions of men and you teach them as if they are the commands of God. You can't change the Sabbath and then claim I'm breaking it. You have to go back and keep it. Now, I do keep the Sabbath because Jesus is my Sabbath. He fulfilled the law. I find my rest in him. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, come unto me and find rest. Hebrews chapter four says, there is a rest that some haven't entered into and Jesus is our rest. He's our Sabbath. We don't give sacrifices because Jesus became the sacrifice for our sin. We don't have a high priest because Jesus became the high priest that gave the sacrifice. And we don't keep the Sabbath like the, the Old Testament says because Jesus has become our Sabbath. Jesus said, I haven't come to do away with that one jot or tittle of the law, but to fulfill it. When people read that, they think that he meant that it had to be kept going on. Moses opened the, law, the book on the law and Jesus closed the book on the law. So because Jesus fulfilled it. And so now all the things I just read you can be true that we are no longer under the law. Now, three things in closing. Number one, we need to understand the difference between heresy and error. Because you're going to hear people that will, the discernment ministries, and unfortunately they just go too far. I think they could do a lot of work and they could be really good to really inform the church about heresies that are out there. But anytime you did, they disagree with them, they paint with a really broad brush. It's problematic. But we need to understand the difference between the two. Number two, we need to never let anyone put us back under the bondage of the law. As I said, they come in unknown. They sneak in among us. They act like they're part of us until they finally win over some trust from you and then begin to tell you, well, they're not really teaching what's right and you've got to keep this part of the law in order to genuinely be saved. Don't let it put you under bondage. Right now, listen, as a Christian, you're free to give to God whatever sacrifices you want to give him. You're free. And that's what God wants from you. He wants you to go, Lord, I give you my life as a sacrifice. I give you the sacrifices that I give you, not from compulsion, but because I want to give these sacrifices to you. Once you allow someone to put you under a law, your freedom to give God what you want to give him is taken away from you. Now you have to do it instead of by, by freedom. One of the things people do is they'll say, well, tithe is mandatory in the New Testament. It's not. And don't let anybody put you into it. You find yourself leaving this church and going to another church and they tell you, if you don't tithe, you're robbing from God. My advice, go find a church that doesn't say that. Because that's the Old Testament law. In the New Testament, we're told, give as you determine in your heart, give without compulsion. 
What does that mean? You're not being compelled to give. I'm not standing up here and saying, you guys better, you better dig deep, better give till it hurts. You better not rob. That's compulsion. But you have the freedom to give and God wants you to give it out of a heart that wants to give to him, a heart of joy to be able to say, Lord, I'm giving this gift to you. That's what legalism robs you from on all levels. Don't let anyone do that to you. Number three, and I, by the way, I won't. I refuse to let anybody take me away from the freedom of Christ and put me under their bondage. Number three, hold on to the many passages in the Bible that tell us that we are saved by grace. There are many of them. I just read a handful of them. If, if, I, if I was going to read all of them, I'd still be reading. If you want to do more of this study on your own, I'll give you the search that you should put in. Just put in any search that you, you want to use. What does the Bible say about not being saved by the law? Or what does the Bible say about being saved by grace? And just go and cut and paste into a note. And then, especially if you've got someone in your life who is teaching you that you have to keep the law in order to be saved, then you'll be able to say, can I just pull up a few scriptures for you and just begin, begin to read these? You'll hear them trying to justify every one of them, but pretty soon it becomes overwhelming because the Bible is so incredibly clear. Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we want to thank you for the time that we've been able to spend here today discussing these issues that we're going to find again in the book of Acts. We're going to see that this battle continues on almost all the way to the end. Lord, we thank you that you are so clear that we are saved by grace, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. It is by faith. And I pray for those that are here today that have never made a commitment to you. I pray that they would make it. I pray that it would be by faith. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.